Chapter 7 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867-1923. to Chapter 7, Part 2. You will now ask what course is to be pursued when the patient does not dream at all. I can assure you that hitherto all patients, even those who claimed never to have dreamed before, began to dream when they went through analysis. But on the other hand, it frequently occurs that patients who began by dreaming vividly are suddenly no longer able to remember their dreams. The empirical and practical rule which I have hitherto regarded as binding is that the patient, if he does not dream, has sufficient conscious material which he keeps back for certain reasons. A common reason is, I am in the doctor's hands and am quite willing to be treated by him, but the doctor must do the work. I shall remain passive in the matter. Sometimes the resistances are of a more serious character. For instance, persons who cannot admit certain morally grave sides to their characters project their deficiencies upon the doctor by calmly presuming that he is more or less deficient morally, and that for this reason they cannot communicate certain unpleasant things to him. If, then, the patient does not dream from the beginning or ceases to dream, he retains material which is susceptible of conscious elaboration. Here the personal relation between the doctor and his patient may be regarded as the chief hindrance. It can prevent them both, the doctor as well as the patient, from seeing the situation clearly. We must not forget that, as the doctor shows, and must show, a searching interest in the psychology of his patient, so too the patient, if he has an active mind, gains some familiarity with the psychology of the doctor, and assumes a corresponding attitude toward him. Thus the doctor is blind to the mental attitude of the patient to the exact extent that he does not see himself and his own subconscious problems. Therefore I maintain that a doctor must be analyzed before he practices analysis. Otherwise, the practice of analysis can easily be a great disappointment to him because he can, under certain circumstances, reach a point where further progress is impossible, a situation which may make him lose his head. He is then readily inclined to assume that psychoanalysis is nonsense, so as to avoid the admission that he has run his vessel ashore. If you are sure of your own psychology, you can confidently tell your patient that he does not dream because there is still conscious material to be disposed of. I say that one must be sure of oneself in such cases, for the opinions and unsparing criticisms to which one sometimes has to submit can be excessively disturbing to one who is unprepared to meet them. The immediate consequence of such a loss of personal balance on the part of the doctor is that he begins to argue with his patient in order to maintain his influence over him, and this, of course, renders all further analysis impossible. I've told you that in the first instance, dreams need only be used as sources of material for analysis. At the beginning of an analysis, it is not only unnecessary but also unwise to make a so-called complete interpretation of a dream, for it is very difficult indeed to make a complete and really exhaustive interpretation. The interpretations of dreams that one sometimes reads in psychoanalytic publications are often one-sided and not infrequently contestable formulations. I include among these certain one-sided sexual reductions of the Viennese school. In view of the comprehensive many-sidedness of the dream material, one must beware above all of one-sided formulations. The many-sidedness of the meaning of a dream 
not its singleness of meaning, is of the utmost value, especially at the beginning of the psychoanalytic treatment. Thus, for instance, a patient had the following dream not long after her treatment had begun. She was in a hotel in a strange city. Suddenly, a fire broke out, and her husband and her father, who were with her, helped her in the work of saving others. The patient was intelligent, extraordinarily skeptical, and absolutely convinced that dream analysis was nonsense. I had difficulty in inducing her to give dream analysis even one trial. Indeed, I saw at once that I could not inform my patient of the real content of the dream under these circumstances, because her resistances were much too great. I selected the fire, the most conspicuous occurrence of the dream, as a starting point for obtaining her free associations. The patient told me that she had recently read in a newspaper that a certain hotel in Z had been burned down, that she remembered the hotel because she had once lived in it. At the hotel, she had made the acquaintance of a man, and, from this acquaintance, a somewhat questionable love affair developed. In connection with this story, the fact came out that she had already had quite a number of similar adventures, all of which had a certain frivolous character. This important bit of past history was brought out by the first free association with the dream part. It would have been impossible, in this case, to make clear to the patient the very striking meaning of the dream. With her frivolous mental attitude, of which her skepticism was only a special instance, she could have calmly repelled any attempt of this kind. But after the frivolity of her mental attitude was recognized and proved to her by the material that she herself had furnished, it was possible to analyze the dreams which followed much more thoroughly. It is, therefore, advisable in the beginning to make use of dreams for the purpose of reaching the important subconscious material by means of the patient's free associations in connection with them. This is the best and most cautious method, especially for those who are just beginning to practice analysis. An arbitrary translation of the dreams is absolutely unadvisable. That would be a superstitious practice based on the acceptance of well-established symbolic meanings, but there are no fixed symbolic meanings. There are certain symbols that recur frequently, but we are not able to get beyond general statements. For instance, it is quite incorrect to assume that the snake, when it appears, has a merely phallic meaning, just as incorrect as it is to deny that it may have a phallic meaning in some cases. Every symbol has more than one meaning. I can, therefore, not admit the correctness of exclusively sexual interpretations, such as appear in some psychoanalytic publications, for my experience has made me regard them as one-sided and therefore insufficient. As an example of this, I will tell you a very simple dream of a young patient of mine. It was as follows. I was going up a flight of stairs with my mother and sister. When we reached the top, I was told that my sister was soon to have a child. I shall now show you how, on the strength of the hitherto prevailing point of view, this dream may be translated so that it receives a sexual meaning. We know that the incest fantasy plays a prominent part in the life of a neurotic. Hence, the picture, with my mother and sister, might be regarded as an illusion in this direction. The stairs have a sexual meaning that is supposedly well established. They represent the sexual act because of the rhythmic climbing of steps. The child that my patient's sister is expecting is nothing but the logical result of these premises. The dream, translated thus, would be a clear fulfillment of infantile desires, which, as we know, play an important part in Freud's theory of dreams. Now, I have analyzed this with the aid of the following process of reasoning. If I say that the stairs are a symbol for the sexual act, whence do I obtain the right to regard the mother, the sister, and the child as concrete, that is, as not symbolic? 
if on the strength of the claim that dream pictures are symbolic, I give to certain of these pictures the value of symbols, what right have I to exempt certain other dream parts from this same process? If, therefore, I attach symbolic value to the ascent of the stairs, I must also attach a symbolic value to the pictures that represent the mother, the sister, and the child. Therefore, I did not translate the dream, but really analyzed it. The result was surprising. I will give you the free associations with the separate dream parts word for word so that you can form your own opinions concerning the material. I should state in advance that the young man had finished his studies at the university a few months previously, that he found the choice of profession too difficult to make, and that he thereupon became a neurotic. In consequence of this, he gave up his work. His neurosis took, among other things, a decidedly homosexual form. The patient's associations with his mother are as follows. I have not seen her for a long time, a very long time. I really ought to reproach myself for this. It is wrong of me to neglect her so. Mother, then, stands here for something which is neglected in an inexcusable manner. I said to the patient, What is that? And he replied, with considerable embarrassment, My work. With his sister he associated as follows. It is years since I have seen her. I long to see her again. Whenever I think of her, I recall the time when I took leave of her. I kissed her with real affection, and at that moment I understood for the first time what love for a woman can mean. It is at once clear to the patient that his sister represents love for a woman. With the stairs, he has this association, climbing upwards, getting to the top, making a success of life, being grown up, being great. The child brings him the ideas, newborn, a revival, a regeneration, to become a new man. One only has to hear this material in order to understand at once that the patient's dream is not so much the fulfillment of infantile desires as it is the expression of biological duties which he has hitherto neglected because of his infantilism. Biological justice, which is inexorable, sometimes compels the human being to atone in his dreams for the duties which he has neglected in real life. This dream is a typical example of the prospective and teleological function of dreams in general, a function that has been especially emphasized by my colleague, Dr. Mader. If we adhered to the one-sidedness of sexual interpretation, the real meaning of the dream would escape us. Sexuality in dreams is, in the first instance, a means of expression, and by no means always the meaning and the object of the dream. The unfolding of the prospective or teleological meaning of dreams is of particular importance as soon as analysis is so far advanced that the eyes of the patient are more easily turned upon the future than upon his inner life and upon the past. In connection with the application of symbolism, we can also learn from the example furnished us by this dream that there can be no fixed and unalterable dream symbols, but at best a frequent repetition of fairly general meanings. So far as the so-called sexual meaning of dreams in particular is concerned, my experience has led me to lay down the following practical rules. If dream analysis at the beginning of the treatment shows that the dream has an undoubted sexual meaning, this meaning is to be taken realistically. That is, it is proved thereby that the sexual problem itself must be subjected to a careful revision. If, for instance, an incest fantasy is clearly shown to be a latent content of the dream, one must subject the patient's infantile relations toward his parents and his brothers and sisters, as well as the relations toward other persons who are fitted to play the part of his father or mother in his mind, to a careful examination on this basis. 
But if a dream that comes in a later stage of the analysis has, let us say, an incest fantasy as its essential content, a fantasy that we have reason to consider disposed of, concrete value must not be attached to it under all circumstances. It must be regarded as symbolic. In this case, symbolic value, not concrete value, must be attached to the sexual fantasy. If we did not go beyond the concrete value in this case, we should keep reducing the patient to sexuality, and this would arrest the progress of the development of his personality. The patient's salvation is not to be found by thrusting him back again into primitive sexuality. This would leave him on a low plane of civilization whence he could never obtain freedom and complete restoration to health. Retrogression to a state of barbarism is no advantage at all for a civilized human being. The above-mentioned formula, according to which the sexuality of a dream is a symbolic or analogous expression, naturally holds good in the case of dreams occurring in the beginning of an analysis. But the practical reasons that have induced us not to take into consideration the symbolic value of this sexual fantasy owe their existence to the fact that a genuine realistic value must be given to the abnormal sexual fantasies of a neurotic, insofar as the latter suffers himself to be influenced in his actions by these fantasies. Experience teaches us that these fantasies not only hinder him from adapting himself suitably to his situation, but that they also lead him to all manner of really sexual acts, and occasionally even to incest. Under these circumstances, it would be of little use to consider the symbolic content of the dream only. The concrete content must first be disposed of. These arguments are based upon a different conception of the dream from that put forward by Freud, for indeed, my experience has forced me to a different conception. According to Freud, the dream is, in its essence, a symbolic veil for repressed desires which are in conflict with the ideals of the personality. I am obliged to regard the dream structure from a different point of view. The dream for me is, in the first instance, the subliminal picture of the psychological condition of the individual in his waking state. It presents a resume of the subliminal association material which is brought together by the momentary psychological situation. The volitional meaning of the dream, which Freud calls the repressed desire, is, for me, essentially a means of expression. The activity of the consciousness, speaking biologically, represents the psychological effort which the individual makes in adapting himself to the conditions of life. His consciousness endeavors to adjust itself to the necessities of the moment, or, to put it differently, there are tasks ahead of the individual which he must overcome. In many cases, the solution is unknown, and for this reason the consciousness always tries to find the solution by way of analogous experience. We always try to grasp what is unknown and in the future according to our mental understanding of what has gone before. Now, we have no reasons for assuming that the unconscious follows other laws than those which apply to the conscious thought. The unconscious, like the conscious, gathers itself about the biological problems and endeavors to find solutions for these by analogy with what has gone before, just as much as the conscious does. Whenever we wish to assimilate something that is unknown, we arrive at it by a process of comparison. A simple example of this is the well-known fact that when America was discovered by the Spaniards, the Indians took the horses of the conquerors, which were strange to them, for large pigs, because pigs were familiar with their experience. This is the mental process which we always employ in recognizing unknown things, and this is the essential reason for the existence of symbolism. It is a process of comprehension by means of analogy. The apparently repressed desires contained in the dream are volitional tendencies which serve as language material for subconscious expression. 
So far as this particular point is concerned, I am in full accord with the views of Adler, another member of Freud's school. With reference to the fact that subconscious materials of expression are volitional elements or tendencies, I may say that this is dependent upon the archaic nature of dream thinking, a problem with which I have already dealt in previous researches. Owing to our different conception of the structure of the dream, the further course of analysis also gains a different complexion from that which it had until now. The symbolic valuation given to sexual fantasies in the later stages of analysis necessarily leads less to the reduction of the patient's personality into primitive tendencies than to the extension and further development of his mental attitude. That is, it tends to make his thinking richer and deeper, thus giving him what has always been one of the most powerful weapons that a human being can have in his struggle to adapt himself to life. By following this new course logically, I have come to the conclusion that these religious and philosophical motive forces, the so-called metaphysical needs of the human being, must receive positive consideration at the hands of the analyst. Though he must not destroy the motive forces that underlie them by reducing them to their primitive sexual roots, he must make them serve biological ends as psychologically valuable factors. Thus, these instincts assume once more those functions that have been theirs from time immemorial. Just as primitive man was able, with the aid of religious and philosophical symbol, to free himself from his original state, so, too, the neurotic can shake off his illness in a similar way. It is hardly necessary for me to say that I do not mean by this that the belief in a religious or philosophical dogma should be thrust upon the patient— I mean simply that he has to reassume that psychological attitude which, in an earlier civilization, was characterized by the living belief in a religious or philosophical dogma. But the religious-philosophical attitude does not necessarily correspond to the belief in a dogma. A dogma is a transitory intellectual formulation. It is the result of the religious-philosophical attitude and is dependent upon time and circumstances. This attitude itself is an achievement of civilization. It is a function that is exceedingly valuable from a biological point of view, for it gives rise to the incentives that force human beings to do creative work for the benefit of a future age, and, if necessary, to sacrifice themselves for the welfare of the species. Thus the human being attains the same sense of unity and totality, the same confidence, the same capacity for self-sacrifice in his conscious existence that belongs unconsciously and instinctively to wild animals. Every reduction, every digression from the course that has been laid down for the development of civilization does nothing more than turn the human being into a crippled animal. It never makes a so-called natural man of him. My numerous successes and failures in the course of my analytic practice have convinced me of the invariable correctness of this psychological orientation. We do not help the neurotic patient by freeing him from the demand made by civilization, we can only help him by inducing him to take an active part in the strenuous task of carrying on the development of civilization. The suffering which he undergoes in performing this duty takes the place of his neurosis. But, whereas the neurosis and the complaints that accompany it are never followed by the delicious feeling of good work well done, of duty fearlessly performed, the suffering that comes from useful work and from victory over real difficulties brings with it those moments of peace and satisfaction which give the human being the priceless feeling that he has really lived his life. End of chapter 7. Recorded by Olivia.